welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. I thought about while I was studying and... um, Obviously, Thanksgiving, and started thinking about the pilgrims. And uh, I loved my elementary school. It will always be Woodrow Wilson to me. Well, what does that mean? They changed the name of it. To be politically correct, I think we're just going to get to the place about 2030 where it's just like, um, we're going to just use variables. It's going to like X elementary school because everybody's got a name and somebody did something wrong at some point in their history, so let's just take them off. I mean, we've got some bona fide losers who want to take Abraham's Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's name off of things. That's how far we've come. Side note, stay off of that, get away. I thought about the little I knew or know about pilgrims. Now, this past Wednesday, we had a thankful night in Awana, and there were some pilgrims and Indians running around. Sorry, I probably just offended someone there. Native Americans, I apologize. And um, I don't think I learned in school who the pilgrims really were. All I remember is dressing up, and they sat around a table, and they had the turkey (laughs) or whatever the meat of the day was. Uh, I think I remember, I remember Mayflower, which um, I think that was about the extent of what I knew about the pilgrims. They came from somewhere over there to here on a ship called the Mayflower. If anybody else, I mean, some of you are smarter than me. I know that. And that's all right. I, I, I'll make it. But did anybody think you learned more than that in elementary school about the pilgrims? You did. Thank you, Hugh. I was the one not paying attention. <laughs> Hugh paid attention. He learned a lot more. And nobody else said it, so you're either not honest or I just didn't pay attention. But I don't think we learned the true history too much. Uh, And so, kind of as an introduction, I want us to just remember, and maybe maybe you already know this. Maybe I'm the, the dumb one in the crowd that just didn't know enough. But just to remind us of how we ended up where we are. That's probably a stretch, but because I don't think they had any intentions of us ending up where we are right now. But the reality of the pilgrims, so I'm going to talk to you teenagers for a while because all the adults just made me feel stupid, like I'm the only one that don't know. So I'm going to talk to the the young ones. I know that crowd back there on that back road. They know everything about the pilgrims. I wish I could see them waving at me right now. At least they're awake right now. But the pilgrims went through a lot. Uh, in the 1500s, oh, ooh, we're going that far back. Yeah, this is going to be a long day. And I won't do all the details of this. If you need any more clarification or details, our resident theo- theologian and historian, Justin Stevers, is back there taking notes to see if I say anything wrong. But I'm going to give us generalities just to kind of get us where we're going And I'm not off topic, so if you get bored here in the next two minutes, we're going somewhere with it, and we'll end up in Psalm 100. 
But during the 1500s when, and this is important for us to understand, the Word of God was beginning to be mass-published in a language the world could read, that world could read, English. This is long before 1611. The Catholic Church was the church. And the Catholic, the, the government of England was the leadership of the church. Most of you know that. But what was amazing and what's still amazing today is when we are able to read the Word of God in our own language and not be told what it says from someone else, um, what, what we now know is the Reformation really began, started sweeping through. Queen Elizabeth, for you um, English or British lovers, was um, tolerable to an extent for a while. She knew about this and was kind of like, all right, we don't really like it, but we're not too. And then she, she, her patience and her tolerability ran out really quick, and she got really mean to Christians. Eventually, she was off the scene, and uh, King James came on the scene, and he was not nearly, or he was never as tolerable as Queen Elizabeth was. He began to hold Christians accountable. These people were meeting privately. Uh, he no longer, at one point in his early tenure, he said, well, if you're caught, um, there, you can do some jail time or we'll at least stop you. I'm being very general on this. But then that ran out really quick and he's like, hey, uh, the second phase was like, you can leave if you want to, but you can't do it here. And then it finally got to the point where King James said, None. You can't even leave. We're not allowing these Christians, if you will, to leave. These uh, reformers who are now studying the Word of God in these small groups in the dark of night in basements. And he said, you can't leave and you can't do what you've been doing. And if we find out, the best that could happen was prison. Because of the pressure and I hope you can learn, and we all learn from history. Because of the pressure, really the reformers grew spiritually in some ways. They would meet in, like I said, and there's some, I've got a ton, I've got four pages of notes that I'm going to synthesize into whatever happens here. They began to meet in the basement, in the dark, by candlelight, to study God's Word. They would put the young teens outside in the streets many times to check and to see if the informers were coming, to say, hey, send a signal, so they'd stop. Pressure was turned on hotter and hotter and hotter until uh, the pilgrims, as they became known, uh, which were at one point the Puritans and some separatists, for you history folks, will, they're not the same, but they're similar. They became kind of like the pilgrim church, if you will. They fled to Holland. They had this plan to flee to Holland because Holland, am I good so far, Justin? Because I'm, I don't know, so do like this. But yeah. so, so Holland was a little more nice. Uh, Holland was um, welcoming to new believers, to different religions. So they had this plan, this, this group of separatists, this group, group of Puritans that we now know as the pilgrims decided that they were going to get to Holland. In order to do that, they sold everything. These, these are not, this is not Disney fairy tales. This is truly what happened. We have dates and names of these people. 
and they wrote about it. So they decided to flee to Holland. That didn't mean go to um, the boat lines and get a boat ticket and take off and go. That meant sell everything, land, everything. They actually bought a ship. Some of you know this ship eventually. Maybe I'll get there. And, um, but before that, they decided to go to Holland and to get out of the country, it was kind of dicey. And they found this English sea captain who agreed to allow them to pay him to secretly get them to Holland. They go 60 miles they had to travel from where they were at to get to the ship. They walked 60 miles to get to the ship. They had sold everything. Their homes were done for. They're fleeing England. For what reason? Religious liberty, freedom to practice what they knew was true because they had read it for themselves in the Word of God. 60 miles later, family, they get to the ship, and the sea captain had sold them out to the English authorities, double-crossed them. Some were imprisoned, but everybody that wasn't imprisoned had to go back home. They had sold everything. There was no home. They began to meet again. They would study. They would meet in their pilgrim church, so to speak. A lot happens, and I hope you know some of this and know more than I'm sharing. They were under intense scrutiny. Their lives were literally in the balance for doing, y'all go right, anybody going to be offended, please don't, for doing quite frankly what we take so lightly Sunday after Sunday, very seriously. I wonder, as we kind of take a 30-second time out from this Puritan pilgrim story, and it makes me wonder what the church is going to look like in 10, 20, 30, 50 years. You can't deny the fact that the pressure is building. You can't deny the fact that the enemy or enemies want to dismantle the church, disregard the church. I wonder if you and I will be men and women of biblical character and integrity that says, no matter what, I'm going to still serve God, I'm going to study his word, and we're going to be. I wonder if we were there right now, this is quite like gripping to me, I wonder which one of us, don't look at me, wonder which one of us would be the one to say, hey, I know a place we can meet. I wonder which one with the biggest basement would say, hey, I can have 40 pretty comfortably. Let's do it Friday night at 10 o'clock. Then I wonder if we could get 40. I'm going to tell you what we won't get. We won't get the people like I talked to this week who said their parents were, said they're Christians, but um, really had this opinion that they could be Christians without being involved in the church. A wise man once said, yeah, you can be a Christian and not go to church, but just not a good Christian. I thought about that even this morning, and I thought, you know what? How can you really be a Christian and not believe in and participate in the, what Jesus is the foundation of, the church? 
I think when people, this, 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 I'm, I'm having joy in this. I hope we teach ourselves something. When someone has no, little to no respect or understanding of the church, I wonder if they even understood the Lord of the church that they said they sold out their lives to. You can't not be a part of the bride of the person that you sold out your life to. The church is the bride of Christ. The church sits on the foundation of the person that we said we forsook all to follow. So when I think about these, now we know them as pilgrims, I wonder if we can learn from them. I wonder how steady, I wonder how strong, I wonder how bold, I wonder how courageous some of us will be when the heat's turned up. I wonder if we could get 20 people out of a church of a thousand members. That makes me mad to say a thousand members, so I'm not going to say that again. If it's a church of 400 here this morning, I wonder if we could get 20 to show up when the heat's turned on. I hope and pray that we can. They continued to meet. They continued to plan to get to Holland so that they could express their freedom. They got to Holland. Let's fast forward cliff notes. Eventually, they started to build their families in Holland. Holland loved them. The Dutch loved them. It's a lesson there. When you become a part of a civilization or a community, they ought to love the church. The church ought to be so, the, the good people in the church, the people that bring unity, the people that bring peace, the people that work the hardest. And the Dutch love these reformers, these Christians, these pilgrims who came over there. And, and they set up and they established in what was at one point a 75-member church, church became 300 strong members weekly. But here's what we know about the Puritans. Here's what we know about the pilgrims. They, had a, they loved the Word of God. They were committed to the Word of God, but they were also committed to the message of the Word of God and the commission of the Word of God, which was to make sure the world knew. Life was great in Holland. Other than there's some history with Amsterdam there. Not much has changed in Amsterdam based on history. But their heart was still at home in England because that's where many of their family members still were. Many of them had left their families, had left their kids with hopes of coming back. It's kind of a cool story. They, they, they figured out a way to get a printing press and, um, in William Brewster's home. And then they started printing these tracts, these religious tracts to, to um, distribute in England that, that weren't so nice to the king. And for years it happened because they loved their people and they loved their country. And um, then they got caught and a guy did 14 years in prison for it. And then eventually they go back to England. They fall under more scrutiny, more pressure. And from that, they decided the best way, and I've got a lot of notes here that I haven't even looked at yet, but um, they said this. The great hope, this, they're back in, in England and Britain. They, the rulers start to actually make laws against them specifically. And then they said this. The great hope for the propagating and advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world compelled the pilgrims to seek a new place. Robert Cushman, John Carver, went to England to solicit a land grant 
north of existing Virginia territory to be called New England. They thought the best way that we can propagate the Great Commission, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was to go to this new land. I don't know what they're teaching today. But the reason they left England to come to the new world was for the propagation of a clear, true gospel. And to be able to experience and establish liberty and freedom of religion. You get so caught up in who did what wrong to who and when and what what they had for dinner and if they wore a headdress at that supper and if they were mad at each other on the other side of a table. I mean, we get caught up. We lose the, the reality of the history that the pilgrims, the Puritans, these separatists had decided this is the best way to practice our religion, to practice Christianity, and to propagate the gospel. Go to this new world. They set sail on August 5th. They purchased, listen, they had built up a new life. They purchased a ship. Y'all know about the Speedwell. They purchased a ship called the Speedwell. They didn't purchase the Mayflower. That was a, that was a public transportation. There were Puritans, there were pilgrims and lost people on this ship on the Mayflower. They purchased the Speedwell. It was going to get them over there, and then they were going to use it as a fishing vessel once they got there. It wasn't, uh, it didn't speed very well. It leaked instantly. Some had to get off, and not everybody on the Speedwell was able to get onto the Mayflower. I'm, I'm drawing a picture here. I know people are already like, where, where are we going most of the time? They had to separate, and some got on the Mayflower, and some didn't get on the Mayflower. People were separated from their families. They get on the Mayflower, which had never crossed to the New World. They're on the Mayflower. They're traveling in September, October. Not the time to take a cruise. (laughs) Not even today. And there's storms and there's sickness. Historians tell us in between the levels was about four and a half feet of room that hundreds of people had to get inside when the storms hit and the leaks sprung. And the main beam in the bow or the main beam running through the center of the Mayflower broke. This is not fairy tale, this is history. The pilgrims who, most of them were Cub Scouts, were prepared. And they had what most to us would be a large galvanized steel screw that they had planned, it was a jack. It would be used as a jack when they built their homes in the new world. But they were able to use that to actually piece together the Mayflower to make sure it sailed safely to the other side. Sickness, craziness, they're Christian Puritans on a boat with drunk fishermen. (laughs) They tell a story, it's it's cool as how it's written right here, I I love this. He described, William Bradford described the trip and he said, there was a seaman who would curse and drink when the pilgrims were singing. Coincidentally, he was the first guy to die on the boat. They threw him over. And and William Bradford writes later that the attitude and behavior quickly changed on the ship. (laughs) True story. Ship leaking, sickness everywhere, ship breaking. The voyage to America, this new world, took 66 days rather than the normal three weeks. 
They traveled 2,750 miles. Now, this is going to help some of you who have, have the gift of patience like me. They traveled 2,750 miles at a whopping breakneck speed of two and a half miles an hour. Sixty-six days instead of three weeks. November 9th, 1620, land is sighted. There were times it says that the storms were so bad that they dropped the sails and just had to let it take them where it took them. They ended up a little bit off target. We know that eventually. But on November 9th, 1620, they saw land. William Brewster led the boat in Psalm 100. Let's stand and read Psalm 100. And let's remember who's on this boat reading... Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know you that the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. And his mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our history. Thank you for men and women of faith and courage who sold out for you. God, in this crazy day that we live in, with all of our pleasantries, with all of our comforts, may we learn from the people like the pilgrims and be men and women grateful because you're worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who take notes, I'm going to mess you up. Probably already have. If you want a simple title, it's Thanksgiving Praise. If you want another title, I have alternates, it's simply this. Jim Baker would be pleased. Praise the Lord. For those of you who are timekeepers, called by God, I have three points. My plan is to preach the first today. It's the longest. That was a joke. I needed a little more laughter. <laughs> Psalm 100 is known, you still have your Bibles open. Psalm 100 is known as the benediction or the doxology psalm of a group of psalms that come right before it, Psalms 93 through 99. They're a series called the Royal, I mean, they're called different things, the Royal Series of Psalms. Royal as in God is king. And he is king. 
If you are flipping through, and I've made some notes in, in Psalm 93, and you don't have to do this, and please don't read it while I'm preaching because that's rude. But Psalm 93, verse 1, the psalmist says, the Lord reigns, he's king, the Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty, he's king, the Lord is clothed with strength wherewith he has girded himself, the world also is established that it cannot be moved. Psalm 94, verse 1, Lord God, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, show yourself. He alone is capable and authority to offer vengeance because he's God, because he is king of all kings. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He didn't call any of us to be the Avengers, as much as we want to be. Psalm 95, verse 1, Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the Lord, the rock of our salvation. Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Psalm 96, Look at verse 4, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above who? All gods. You can be really spiritual, really theology, you know, a theologian and say, you know that song, there's no God like Jehovah? You say, no, there's no God but Jehovah. No, the reality is God's word says there are other little G gods and the world is full of people who are serving little G gods. So you can act like they're not there and be really spiritual and say there's no God but Jehovah. We understand that, theologians. But the reality is the world, we are, we are just in, encircled by people who are serving little g gods. And God says, I am the God. The psalmist says, you are the God above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Oh, that's, that's I like sarcasm. I like good wit and just smack you in the face and you don't even know it. And that's kind of what the psalmist does right here. Hey, the Lord is great and greatly to be praised be feared above all the gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. He's, he didn't say, but God is not an idol. He goes a step further. But the Lord made the heavens. He's creator. He created the ones who's capable of creating idols. Honor and majesty, he's king, are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Verse 90, Psalm 97, the Lord reigneth, verse 1. Let the earth rejoice, let the multitudes of the isles be glad thereof. Psalm 98, verse 1. Sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm has gotten him the victory. Doesn't even need two arms for victory. Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns. And the people tremble. He sits between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. No little G gods can make the earth move. He is God. He is king. He is sovereign. He is authority. There is none like him. There's none above him. He is God. He is in control. And verse in Psalm 100 concludes these royal series of psalms by saying praise God from whom all blessings flow it's the psalmist way of singing our doxology and if you're really nice we'll sing it at the end <laughs> in this text today we'll look at the first point that describes or gives a description of praise proper praise 
Later, we'll look at why we praise him, why he's worthy, what determines it. The first, for you note takers, point is the atmosphere of praise that we see in this text. If you like a second outline, it's a description of our praise. It's found in verses 1, 2, and 4. And it describes the atmosphere of praise. I know you know this. You don't have to be a pastor or study churches or get into it as much as I do to know this. But churches have an atmosphere. Like you can walk into a church most of the time and kind of figure it out pretty quickly. Visitors walk in pretty quickly. They kind of get a vibe. Uh, I went... Some of you would like this church I'm about to describe, but when I was in college, I went to a church. I heard it was a conservative Baptist church, and I went into it, and it was my, like my favorite kind of church. I mean, I like the way our church looks, but I like the old school look, and um, it was kind of that old school look, but it was a little bigger. It had been updated, but um, they started at 11 o'clock. I'm doing this early stuff. We're not going to 10.30. We still started at 11 o'clock. They did the Lord's Supper. They had a children's church time in the service. The choir sang a couple songs, nothing like what we just sang, and not the amount of people that just did. And the pastor preached, and at five minutes till 12, you could hear a rustling of coats getting put on. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. Now, I was the youngest one in there by about six decades, probably. <laughs> and, um, but there was an atmosphere there. And... I've been into some churches before. We, we used to sing. We had a, a really famous quartet that used to travel a countryside. And uh, we would sing at churches. You walk in, and there were some atmospheres. For those of you who don't know me, that first part was a really big joke. But um, we weren't famous, I and mean, we didn't travel the countryside. We traveled country, parts of the country by the side, but we didn't travel and um, we've been to some churches where I was wondering, I was looking for the box of snakes. <laughs> like we literally went in one church one time and they said it was a Southern Methodist church. I loved the church. It, was, it, it looked like something on a Christmas picture and it had the bell that they rang and they actually rang the bell before church and it was really fun. But I got in and I could see the vibe and I could feel the atmosphere and I was like, do y'all see a box up there anywhere? I'm not doing this. That or a foot washing pan. I'm not having any part of the snakes or the feet. And so the atmosphere was there. Sometimes the atmosphere is good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's godly, sometimes it's not godly. Now that's my opinion. Some of you would agree with that. But you know, there's a, I hope I don't offend anyone. I think I'm in the presence of friends. Um, when you walk into a church, a godly church, I don't think it ought to look like Spectrum Arena. I don't like the fog. People crawling around wondering if the building's on fire, holding doorknobs, trying to figure out if they're hot. But there's an atmosphere. If you like that, you're probably not here. Or you like that and you, somebody lied to you and told you that's what's going to happen. You're sorely disappointed this morning. But in this passage in Psalm 100, God, through the psalmist, illustrates and describes the atmosphere of praise that's not only desirable, but it's expected by God. Why? Because he's king. 
I was in Sunday school this morning, which is where you should be because we've got a class for everybody. And my, my teacher said that he would get nervous if he talked to the president. And then he said something that he shouldn't have said because he didn't respect our president. But he didn't know I'd had a dream and I talked to the president last night. He had his legs crossed. He was so welcoming and inviting. But, and it was crazy. I, but some of y'all were there, so I didn't get to talk to him one-on-one. But there were people there. But he said he'd be nervous. Listen, if you walked into the, uh, the royal court of a king, there would be a different atmosphere. You walk up to the president, try to walk up to him, it's a different atmosphere that you'll feel real quickly. That's not, that's not right. There's just difference. And there's a reason there's 14 black cars coming with sirens going in the whole nine yards, because there's an atmosphere. He's the president. He's pretty worthless at this point, but he's still the president, and there's still an atmosphere because of his position. Multiply that times infinity, walking into the king of kings and the Lord of lords courtroom. And he says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. We'll get there. I'm ahead of myself. Enter his courts. It's talking about entering into, in that day, the temple, entering into God's presence. Now, I, I, I'm young enough to not be mean old person, I think, when it comes to church, but I'm, I'm still old enough to kind of hold on to some of my opinions. But yet I'm wise enough to know that it's my opinions, but that I really want you to abide by them. You see the dilemma. There's been some things that, you know, like, that probably shouldn't happen in the sanctuary. But then there's some of you, that shouldn't happen on God's property. Not even on the back entrance or whatever. I don't know. See the difference. But what I do know is the Bible says that God um, dwells, that he inhabits the praise of his people. What I do know is that this place, this church, whether you can find the verse or not, this sanctuary ought to be separated for him. It ought to be consecrated for him. This ought to be a place that's special because he dwells among us. Now, I know if two or three are gathered in a station wagon that he's in the midst of us as well, but this is a place that we've dedicated and separated. There's events that happen on this property that we don't let happen in the sanctuary. Why? Because it's separate, it's special. It's a place where we acknowledge God is coming to dwell among us. And if we think of it that way, and we think that this is his royal ballroom. Oh, dancing, can't say that. His royal (laughs) dinner table. I don't know. Then we come in here with an attitude and creating an atmosphere of praise. Most of you could name somebody if you had five minutes with that person, that celebrity, that whatever, oh, you would cry, you would faint, you know, people throwing clothes and undergarments on Elvis and, and all that stuff. Some of you can think of those people and you say, man, if I could meet that person, oh, I'd just be overwhelmed with emotion and all that kind of crazy. Listen, this is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is his place. We should be overwhelmed, not necessarily with emotion, but with praise because he is worthy of it. And here's how we do it. It's an atmosphere first of victory. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. That's not necessarily singing. Why? How do I know that? Because later he says singing. That was simple, wasn't it? We're like, well, I can't sing, but I'll make a joyful noise. Well, you just misinterpreted Scripture. 
Make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise means a victorious shout. It's important there. I, I, I know, I know, I know too many of you, so I, I can read your minds. You're like, well, you don't shout. You're, you're misinterpreting, and that's your problem, not mine. So the reality is, he says, enter into his presence, making a victorious noise, a shout. Why? I don't want you to, th- I, here's what I don't want us to do, at least for right now. Let's not focus on the shout. Let's focus on that adjective, victorious shout. The, it's an atmosphere of victory. I don't know about you, but I like sports. I play sports. I get into sports. I coach sports, probably too, probably sinfully. But there, there's a difference in winning and losing. There used to be. Uh, it's just a game. We had fun. Y'all have fun? Let's go eat a popsicle. Here's the, I just came for the orange slices or whatever they do. <laughs> my daughter played soccer, and I vowed that no one would ever play soccer in my home. But she's special, so we played soccer. And I think even she realized that she was playing with a bunch of losers and didn't want to play anymore. <laughs> she never played in her life, and she was like Mia Hamm out there. I'm like, what, what in the world? Because the, the rest of them... It was bad. And, I, and I, it drives me, even for children, and Jesus said stuff for the little children, but for children to be like out there, uh, and then they don't even know when it ended, and when they find out it's ended, they're like, where's our snacks? <laughs> they're there for the snacks, not for winning. Listen, we come into his house celebrating victory. The reason we come on Sundays is because he rose victoriously from the grave on Sunday. We're not coming to a funeral. We're coming to a resurrection party. Sunday after Sunday, this is a celebration of victory. And for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the victor, we are overcomers. We are more than conquerors. Even though we had a bad day, even though we had a bad week, even though my knee hurts, or even though my back hurts, or even though I got a doctor's appointment, you're a winner, a true winner, and we create an atmosphere of victory. Man, the best thing you can do for the devil is to walk into this place looking like you're bored to death and hate to be here. Man, Sunday again? Felt like it was just yesterday. (laughs) Gotta go to church. No, you don't. You don't. Matter of fact, if if you have that attitude, you'd probably better not to. Because you're gonna mess the rest of us up. Because God, listen, this is so important, and I knew this would happen. This is not about me. This is not about him. It's not about him. It's not about him. It's not about your Sunday school teacher. It's not about the, what you got to do when you get here. It's about this is about the king. And we come in here to honor the king. Well, I don't like coming there. Well, is God there? Find somewhere where God's at and go to honor him. If you come in there to honor the preacher, honor the pastor, dishonor the pastor, you're dishonoring God. 
Because it wasn't about the preacher in the first place. It wasn't about your friend. It wasn't about your neighbor. I'm not talking to the children. Children come to have fun. That's fine. But we're talking about grown, spiritual, mature adults that have gripes about everything under the sun within the sanctuary of God when it ought to be a place praising and worshiping the King of Kings. But we get so caught up in the silly goofiness. And I'm telling you why that happens, because we get caught up in just doing church. If you wake up, and I've done it, I've been there. I've been a spiritual loser at times. They're like, ah, pfft, the church. But I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I wasn't where I was supposed to be spiritually. When I get to where I'm supposed to be spiritually, I change my attitude about church. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Whatever noise, and I've heard some crazy noises in church, by the way, that were, that were praising, just so I'm not critical. Um, but it ought to be a victory shout. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul told the church there, talking about death and talking about our loved ones who have died, he said, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. One of my favorite songs is to sing in the church is victory in Jesus. It always has been for whatever reason. But when we sing victory in Jesus, do we understand? Are we celebrating that we have victory in Jesus? He says an atmosphere of victory and an atmosphere of joy. Serve the Lord with gladness. The word joy there or gladness is joy. Serve him, work pleasing to him with a grateful and glad heart. Not begrudgingly. Um, oh, I hope they don't ask me to do that. Man, don't they know? I mean, I, I already come to church. What more do they want? I mean, I'm here. They expect more out of me? No, God does. God does. Do I have to do this? Is one way to ask it. Or do I get to do this? Is another way. I could preach and be the pastor here for a second, but I wouldn't want to offend anybody. So I won't go into great detail, but I will at least hit it. If a pastor at this church or a leader that's under pastoral authority in this church asks you to do something, you ought to count it a joy and a privilege to be asked to do something. I can assure you based on the pastor, and I know him well, and the staff can confirm this. If you get asked to do something, it's not because you were sitting on the bench on the sidelines twiddling your thumbs and had nothing to offer. It's because there's been some prayer, there's been some conversation about it, and, and you've been selected not drafted, but you've been selected to be asked to do something. And that ought to be a testimony. Now, if you respond and you're like, oh, and we find out, then we're going to mark your name off and say, we, we badly mistook that that person had spiritual integrity and wanted to serve God. My bad. And we're going to pray for you that you get right with God, and the next time somebody asks you to do something, you might do it. 
There's a difference in serving, the, serving God out of I have to and serving him because I get to, because I want to. You know why we end up in that position? A couple reasons. Because we think we're serving man and we don't like the man that asks. Or quite honestly, because we don't realize we're serving God and he is worthy of our service. And we let the man thing get in the way. Well, if somebody else would have asked me, they were just the messenger of God who asked you to do something. Serve him with joy, an atmosphere of singing. We'll come back to that one. Letter D, because it's Thanksgiving, an atmosphere of thanksgiving and praise. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It represents the idea of walking into the temple, walking into the sanctuary, walking into this church. The word thanksgiving there is not just uh, the pilgrims and the Indians. The word thanksgiving there is uh, a word, it's in the Hebrew that it comes to English as an extension of the hand, as in adoration. It's the example of a choir of worshipers, not just a choir of singers, a choir, a group of worshipers. Praise there means laudation, the act of praising. It means to make something shine or to put an emphasis on. I know, I know we look around and people have been to different churches, different types of churches, different styles of churches, right? And sometimes people praise and they look like they're, it's, it's solo dance act time. And then they praise God. It's like, everybody, whoa, that's some good moves on him. That's not Praise. Because the shine and the light's on the person. I mean, if you're doing the worm trying to praise God, that's probably taking the focus off of God and on you. True praise and adoration shines the focus on the one we're praising. Bless his name. What does that mean? It the physical word means to kneel, to adore. It's an act of humility for me to get on this knee right here. It felt awkward when I did it. Why? Because I know me, because I'm flesh, and I was born proud, and I was born arrogant, and I was born pompous, and I was born sinful and selfish. But when I understand who God is in my finite yet brilliant mind, if I start to get a glimpse of who God is, that he is king, that he is authority, and there is power not only in who he is, but even in his name, the psalmist says, bless his name. We, we struggle. We struggle in the American church in 2021 to, to do this. And this is something you can't find a verse. I know, I know. So get the verse stuff out of your head. We struggle as pastors in the American church today because of comfort, because of hardness, because of critical spirits and all the craziness that goes on. We, we suffer and we strive and we struggle today to get a person off of a pew to an altar 
not just to repent and confess sin. Because we've allowed flesh, we've allowed people, we've allowed pride to tell us this. Don't have a verse for it. You can amen it or you can owe me it or you can say he's crazy. We've allowed pride to tell us, I don't have to go to an altar. I'm, I can pray right here. Oh, he, he thinks he's the old school. I can pray on my way to work and ask God to forgive me. Yeah, you can. I can pray. I pray all kind of crazy places. You know, the difference is it takes humility. And I'm, I'm preaching to the preacher. And it takes an understanding of who God is for, for, for these joints to do just like this. We start to think, oh, somebody's going to think I've done something crazy. No, that's the problem. The problem is we're all crazy. The problem is we're all sinners. The problem is we all need God. It's just the understanding that we do need God. And, and it's not like, listen, it's not like we're, oh, come down to the altar, you sinners, and get right with God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. But what happened to walking, in it, walking into God's sanctuary and understanding that he's king? Because if you walked in today, if you walked into his office I guarantee you, you wouldn't walk in like you walk into the church most of the time. I guarantee if you walked into the presence of God around his um, executive desk, you wouldn't walk up to him like we walk up to the altar. But when we understand who he is, we understand that his name alone deserves our kneeling adoration. Then he can do a work in our life that no preacher, no pastor, no teacher, nobody else can do. He's worthy. He's worthy. I didn't get that job. I didn't get that promotion. My tire blew out, blah, 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 whatever, all the stuff happened. That's not why he deserves our praise. He deserves our praise because he's God, and that's in the text, and I didn't get to it. He deserves our praise because he is king. And if you're here today and he's not king, there's a reason you don't understand this. And to be quite honest, in the church, we've messed up things over the years, and we didn't let people know that you're surrendering to the king. And you just, you just got rid, you just um, forsook your ability to run your life. When the pilgrims, oh, pilgrims again. The pilgrims were under the kingship of a wicked authority. Y'all with me? Y'all good? Everybody good? When they read the word of God and knew and realized who the true king was and knew the plans for their life, and they devoted their life to the good king, y'all with me? By faith, they sought out to go to a place they had never been. Because their authority was no longer under this wicked king, but under the good king. Good sounds like it's not good enough. It's in my message. It's later down the road. But it's not just an attribute of God. It's who God is. He is good is what this text says. His nature is good. That means there's nothing in his nature that is bad. 
He is the good king. And they sought out by faith to serve the true living king. It reminds me that there was a day that I left the authority of the wicked king that I was born into. And by faith, I entered a journey. By faith, you entered a journey. That in God's eyes, it's only a few days, but in our eyes, it's like 66 days. And there's storms, and there's sickness, and you, we've even lost a few people along the way. But one day, after this journey comes to a conclusion, after the sicknesses, after the deaths, after the storms, there will be a day where somebody can tell us or we'll see a new land. And if you're a believer, you can almost see that new land. And we long for that new land. Can you imagine a new land where he is king forever and ever and ever? I don't know if this helps. It helps me. It makes this journey a little more bearable. It made their journey a little more bearable, knowing of the possibilities that lie ahead by faith. Would you stand with me? I know what time it is. I got a couple watches, but I just want to be submissive to God. If you want to bow your head, that's fine. If you want to be in prayer, that's fine. I'm not begging for somebody to come to an altar. I didn't do that for somebody to come to an altar. There's nothing, no benefit to me. But it'll benefit you when you get honest with God and you humble yourself to him, when I humble myself to him. It makes a difference. If you're here today, more importantly than anything, and he's not king of your life, he's not Lord of your life, and you only read about him being authority, but you don't understand and apply it to your life, that means you're lost. That means you're not a, sa- not, not a saved person. You're, you're still lost in your sins. And so I ask you this, honestly, between you and God, has there ever been a time where you made him Lord of your life, king of your life? Or you gave him complete control. That's what salvation is, by the way. It's not church membership. It's not making decisions. It's not getting wet in the baptistry. It's about making him king of your life. Maybe today would be the day where you say, I want to accept him as Lord of my life. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He'll save you. You acknowledge his word. Acknowledge you're a sinner. Acknowledge that he loves you. That God did love the world enough to pay the price for your sin because... While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You confess him as Lord, king of your life today, he'll change your life forever. And you can make that decision today. If you're a believer here today like me, no question about it. It's just a reminder, it's a refresher course to say, hey, am I treating him as king in my life? Have I forgotten that he's king and deserves all of my praise, all of my honor, all of my glory? all of my thanksgiving. God forbid that a Christian mom, a Christian dad make it through this week and not at some point 
one, one week out of the year, I know this is not the case, acknowledge and thank God and be gracious and grateful to God for all he's done for you. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing. If you wanna do business with God at an altar, not because there's a verse in a chapter that says you need to do it, but because you wanna publicly acknowledge and adore him, submit to his authority. I'm telling you what it does every time I bow my knee, every time I bow my head to pray, it reminds me that I am needy and I need him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word that's so clear. God, I thank you for reminding me, reminding us that in a way that we can't fathom, you are above all things. God, your word says you are creator, you are sustainer of the universe. But even though you have plenty to do, you still love us individually. You have plans for us individually. You care about us individually as a shepherd for his sheep. God, today, if nothing else happens in this room, I pray that one thing happens is that you receive praise, you receive honor, you receive glory, you receive our thanksgiving for all you've done spiritually for us. And God, I pray if there's a man or a woman some boy or girl that doesn't know that they're born again. They've never made you king and Lord of their life. I pray today would be the day that they do that. In Jesus' name, while we sing. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.